This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Familiar with just how much the mind and body influence each other? We certainly see this when we start to meditate. But I think many of us, even who before we meditated, were kind of aware that, you know, when a strong emotion arose, like anger or something, that it impacts the body. And when, you know, calm or happiness comes up, it also gives us different sense to the body. So there's a, there's a, a connection between the mind and the body. We're, we're very familiar with the, hmm, the way our emotions kind of impact our body. But also our body impacts our mind as well. When, for instance, we stub our toe, which I did just yesterday, you know, that, that um, painful sensation that comes can create stuff in the mind. It can create reactivity. It can create frustration or self-criticism. So the body also, so this is, it's a two-way street. The mind influences the body, the body influences the mind. And not just emotions influence the body. I mean, like, even thoughts, even sim- the simplicity of a thought can impact the body. Sometimes, I mean, just, just think about, as an example, for maybe in your meditation, a thought came up about something you were doing last week or, you know, so something came up in your mind. And all that was was an arising of a thought about something you remembered. But sometimes, and I'm sure you're familiar with this experience, sometimes when thoughts come up in the mind, they come along with the emotional terrain or content that was present when that experience happened. So the memory arose just as a thought in the mind. And that memory kind of brings with it a whole emotional and bodily interaction. So this, you know, this two-way street between body and mind, there's, there's so much connection between the two. And in the teachings of the Buddha, he particularly highlighted a, a quality of mind that at which this like point of connection between body and mind happen. It's a factor in the mind that he called intention or volition. The volition, intention, is just a little urge in a mental urge. It's a mental urge that impels us to act. Every single action that we do of body, of speech, even of our minds, has this impulse that precedes it. In the guided meditation, I, um, I suggested at the end of the guided meditation that you see if you could just be still, remain still, not with the uh, sense of holding yourself still, but just, just to, to have that sense of relaxing into stillness, and then to see if you might notice an urge to move, 
You know, you might have felt an itch or just a little bit of a discomfort in the body and a little bit of an urge to move. So did any of you notice that urge before you moved? Did, did any of you notice that? A couple of you. So this this urge that happens, it's possible to see it. And this kind of exercise can highlight it. If you're interested in, in playing with this at home, you could explore in your sitting meditation one time when you have a time that you don't have a particular oh, constraint on the end of the sitting to sit until there's a strong impulse to get up. So don't set a timer for the for the sitting. So sit until the strong impulse to, to, to get up, to finish the sitting, comes up. But then don't get up. Sit through it. Watch the, the urge. Feel what it feels like to have that urge to move. And it will pass. It actually won't take very long. You know, probably within a minute, less than a minute even. It might even take 15 seconds. So watch that urge pass. And then the second time it happens, do it again. Watch that urge arise and pass. The third time it happens, get up. <laughs> so that gives you a little bit of a flavor of this impulse. It might give you a taste of, of what I'm talking about, this impulse to move before we move. So it's possible to see this impulse. It's possible to recognize it. It's possible to know we're going to move our body before we move it. It's possible to know we're going to speak before we speak. It's possible even to know we're we're going to think before we think. That one is more subtle, not so easy to see. But it is possible to see that. Possible to see the mind kind of headed towards an emotion before that emotion comes up. So this place of intention, you know, intention itself is just a little, like, impulse. A sense of about to. Maybe you have a sense of what that is, you know, just about to get up, about to move, about to speak. So that little kind of urge in the mind pointing us to or having us uh, recognize that something is about to happen, that can be seen, that can be known. And in and of itself, it's it's, it's a neutral thing. It's just an urge. It's just an urge to act. This um, the, the poly for this, I know that uh, Shaila likes to keep you up with the poly on these terms. So um, the poly term for this is Chetna, C-E-T-E-N-A. And it's just this impulse, this impulse that arises right before something's going to happen. I guess I would say the urge itself isn't the crucial part of what this exploration is about around this intention, but with an intention to move with an intention to speak, comes what we can call a motivation, a reason why we are going to say something or do something. Now, this is a place that the Buddha said, this is a really interesting place to pay attention to. Why we do something. What's our motivation? The the Buddha actually pointed to this as a key place in our experience 
when we are not aware of our intentions, our habits of mind, the, the, the ways that we've been conditioned, the familiar habits and patterns that we all live with, when we're not when we're not present and aware for these moments of intention, which we're not present for a lot of them, then basically our habits are deciding, choosing our motivations for us. And so when we're not aware of this moment of intention, this moment of motivation associated with an intention, then essentially we're kind of at the mercy of our habits. And often those habits are not so helpful. I, I've had so many, you know, aversion is one of, has been one of my really strong habits of mind. You know, I would walk into a room and notice everything I didn't like about the room. That would be my orientation because of that aversive habit in the mind. And so if I wasn't aware of it, if I wasn't aware of that aversive tendency, then walking into a room, the intentions around what I paid attention to were motivated by that aversion. So we have, we have these habits of our mind. And the, the Buddha said, you know, if we keep, if we're not aware of the habits of our mind and we're not aware of what's motivating our actions, we're probably doing things, acting on intentions, acting on motivations that are probably not so helpful. The, let's say the whole of what the Buddha pointed us to was a a movement towards peace, towards freedom, towards ease. And the exploration around that was to see what's in the way. What is it that makes us struggle? What is it that makes us suffer? How is it that we get caught? And he pointed to three particular motivations in our mind. Motivations of greed, motivations of aversion, motivations of delusion, as being kind of the motivations that tend to lead us down the path of struggle. When we act out of aversion, we tend to be strengthening that quality of aversion in our minds. When we act out of greed, we tend to be strengthening the quality of greed in our minds. When we act out of confusion, we tend to be strengthening the quality of confusion in our minds. And so this this moment of choice, when we uh, have this intention to act, this intention to speak, the motivation that accompanies that intention is what will either lead us down the path towards more struggle in our lives or lead us down the path of more happiness in our lives. The Buddha pointed to those motivations that take us more towards happiness, towards letting go of struggle, as being non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. To put it more positively, motivations of kindness, of generosity, and of wisdom. And so, you know, we we may have a sense sometimes that you know, if, if I'm not acting based on what I want and what I don't want, what, what would be the motivation for doing anything? There actually are some wholesome motivations, these beautiful motivations of love, of kindness, of compassion, of generosity, of wisdom. One of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, says, 
when wisdom is present in the mind, which is non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, when wisdom is present in the mind, wisdom also wants to act. It wants to act to alleviate suffering. It wants to act to move towards ease and peace. And so there is this possibility of wholesome motivation, the possibility of action from skillful motivations. So the word intention, in English at least, carries the connotation of being aware of our intentions. We, we use the word intention when we say, I intend to do something, you know, as, as, you know, in the sense of I'm, I know that I'm going to do something. The word chetna, the Pali word chetna, is sometimes what's called a universal factor of mind. It arises in every single moment of experience. It happens with every, like, just that movement that I made, that movement of my hands, there were hundreds if not thousands of intentions happening in my mind to make that movement happen. Every single moment there's a, a little tiny intention happening to like just that movement of my hand or the movement of my head. There's an intention arising that I'm not aware of. <laughs> you know, I can't, it, it, you know, teaching in this this form right now, I can sometimes see that level of intention when I'm on retreat, you know, but, so, so there's a lot of intentions that we don't see. So this, this factor of intention is not just about the times that we can see it. Every single action of body, of speech, or mind is accompanied by an intention, and that intention has a motivation with, with connected to it. And so just this movement of my hands, I, I mean, I, I, I can see that in my mind, I don't see the individual intentions, but I can see that in my mind the, the intention is to support, I use my hands to support what I'm saying, you know, to offer uh, a little bit of visuals, I guess. So, you know, the intention is to help, to clarify. That, that's the intention in the mind as this movement happens. So the Buddha pointed to this in the moment, being aware of our intention to act, to speak. Just in this moment. This is the only moment we can be aware of our intentions. We can't redo our intentions from the past, our intentions and motivations from the past. We can't act on intentions in the future, the only place we can act on intentions is right now. And in, in exploring intention in our practice, and I'll give you some ways to explore this in your daily lives in, in just a few minutes, in exploring this in your practice, we, can, we start to see that actually this moment, the choices made in this moment, are the only thing we have. That's it. That's all there is, is this moment and the unfolding that happens as a result of choices right now. And so, the Buddha really pointed to this this very split second and the choices that we make. 
inclining our minds towards wholesome choices, skillful motivations with respect to our actions. So when we're not conscious and not aware, when we're in a kind of a mindless state or a lost in thought, then our, our habits are choosing for us. And sometimes these habits know what to do. You know, when we're driving down the freeway and we're lost in thought, our habits know how to drive the car. You know, it's like, who's doing the driving anyway? You know, it's like the mind is completely on another planet and yet the the signal's going on, lanes are being changed, you know, you're looking over, seeing if there's somebody coming up. The The habits of mind know how to do that activity. And so there's some of these intentions that are very kind of neutral. They just know how to take care of us. And then there's other intentions, you know, around speech, for instance, where we may mm, bring in our habits of reactivity. And when we're not aware, for instance, when we speak, and this is actually a really great place to practice in daily life is with, with our speech. So when we're not aware of the intention to speak, we're not aware of speaking while we're speaking, usually we are speaking out of habit and often speaking from reactive habit. I think I can probably safely say that everyone in this room has at one time or another said something they wish they hadn't said. That habit of mind of aversion or frustration or impatience burst out of the mouth. So if we could be present for that moment of knowing when we're going to speak before we speak. And it just actually takes a moment. One great practice around this is just see if you can pause for a split second before you say something. If you can do that, you have caught the intention to speak before you speak. If you can, in that moment, wait for just a moment. You may not see the impulse itself, but there's something in us that knows it. And so that pause is kind of a manifestation of seeing that urge to speak. If you can pause before you speak, in that moment, you will probably already know what is going to come out of your mouth. So you have that opportunity to see that. You may also know why you're going to say what you're going to say. That motivation that's associated with that thing you're going to say. So frustration might be the motivation. Wanting to impress might be the motivation. Wanting to convey information. You know, there's lots of different reasons why we speak. But in that moment of pausing, we have the opportunity to catch that intention to speak and notice the motivation. And if you see a, a motivation of frustration or impatience, 
there's the opportunity to refrain, to recognize the language of harshness or divisiveness that may be about to burst out of your mouth. And maybe you, you might be able to say something with a gentler tone, with more compassionate language. So that moment of catching the intention, that moment of seeing that impulse is very powerful. Just simply noticing it and seeing what the motivation is. Now, you know, doing this as a practice, probably there's going to be a lot of times when you forget entirely. You know, part of our practice is being very compassionate with ourselves, <laughs> really forgiving to ourselves of the uh, ways our mind just goes into mindlessness. And we have to be compassionate for ourselves. And when we recognize that we've forgotten to just simply recommit to keep trying, that intention, that motivation to just keep trying, is where the whole practice unfolds from. I think it's Bhikkhu Bodhi who says that really there are only two things we have to do in practice. We have to start and we have to continue. And it will unfold from there. We'll forget We'll forget, but if in the forgetting, I mean, and this was this is this was this happened to me when I very first started. I was very first introduced to mindfulness practice. I was reading a book called Thich Nhat Hanh's Miracle of Mindfulness, and um, I was in my twenties, and I'd read the book at night and think, "Wow, this is really cool! I want to try this tomorrow." And uh, I go to my job, and I'd forget. I would forget until I picked up the book on the nightstand the next night. And after several days of that, I gave up. I, what I basically said to myself was, obviously this doesn't work for me. And I didn't meet mindfulness again for another 15 years. At that point, I didn't give up. At that point, I began watching what was happening in my mind, seeing, wow, I'm forgetting mindfulness a lot. And when I noticed that I had forgotten, I simply recommitted. I'm going to keep trying. And so that, that brought an intention into the mind of continue, continue. So that motivation to continue to keep trying. So when you notice that you've forgotten for a day to remember to pause before speaking, just recommit. Keep trying. It will. That, that commitment, that motivation to keep trying will bear fruit. It takes time. It may be the way it bears fruit is by remembering three or four times during the day that you've forgotten instead of only once every two days. And then maybe five or six times during the day remembering you've forgotten to be aware 
while speaking, to be aware of that moment before speaking. At some point, if you keep recommitting, every time you remember you've forgotten, if you keep recommitting, it will start to happen. So you really have to be compassionate in that moment, bringing in the intention of compassion in that moment when you remember. It's like, yeah, I forgot, but just keep trying. So likely that you'll forget a lot. You may uh, notice that moment of intention. You may notice that pause. And the momentum of that mind just wanting to blurt it out is so strong that even seeing the intention didn't matter. Again, you know, compassion. Don't, you, don't beat yourself up about it. <laughs> really, don't beat yourself up about it. But notice what happens. There may be in that moment that, oh, you know, a sense of, what's a wholesome sense of, wow, I wish I hadn't said that. Not in a self-hatred kind of way, but a sense of, that wasn't a skillful thing to say. You know, kind of recognizing the, the twist that came out in your language. So, you know, recognizing that, and you may in that moment be able to stop and say, I apologize right now. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't want it to, to come out that way. In the moment, you may be able to, to change course. And so it does take a lot of compassion to watch our motivations. When we, <laughs> when we start to watch our minds for our motivations, it's very humbling. We get to see in spades just how powerful those habits of mind are. And so it, it takes a lot of um, honesty and commitment and open-heartedness for our own foibles, for our own uh, habits and patterns of mind. And again, you know, that motivation to just keep trying will bear fruit. I'm proof of this. It's, it's amazing how much transformation can happen through just continuing. Just continuing. We can also start to explore larger kind of motivations. You know, the motivations I'm talking about right now are the, the momentary motivations. And yet, you know, we all have a sense of our ideals or our aspirations. And it can be helpful to uh, reflect on those, those larger motivations, those larger intentions, uh, the the sense of purpose in our lives. So, you know, right now, what, what is your aspiration for your life? What is a, what, what's meaningful for you in your life? You know, sometimes we have larger motivations in our lives, larger purposes in our lives that we're kind of unaware of. You know, having a good job or earning a lot of money or looking good to other people. You know, sometimes we're living our lives with purposes that we're not really conscious of. And sometimes we can reflect on what our, our deeper purpose is and begin to see if we might be able to 
connect our moment-to-moment motivations with that deeper purpose. I mean, our deeper purpose might be something like, I'd like to not cause harm in the world. I'd like to have an open heart. I'd like to be kind. I'd like to let go of the way my mind ties me into knots. I'd like to experience ease and peace. I'd like to have peace, peacefulness be the frame for my life. And so spending some time reflecting on what a deeper motivation is, what is it, kind of an orienting purpose of your life. If you connect with that deeper purpose, then even the simple activities of your life, it can be interesting to explore, how can I tie a thread from that deeper purpose to the simple activities of my life? So, you know, if the intention is opening the heart, kindness. How might going to the grocery store be able to connect to that intention? You know, we go to the grocery store with the intention to buy our food, and that's, you know, that's a perfectly valid intention. And we buy our food to support our families. So right there, there's that intention to support our own bodies, to support our, our friends and family. So right there, there's that connection with that intention of caring. Purchasing food is an act of caring. Can you be aware of that? When we just go through the motions... You know, our intention, our motivations for getting stuff off the shelves might be impatience and frustration. Whereas if we can connect to, you know, this activity is actually a kind thing to do for myself. As opposed to this is something I have to do to get it over with so that I can get home to make the food so that I can, you know, do these other things I haven't done today. Can we actually connect with how our simple activities support our deeper purpose? So the simple activity of caring for ourselves right there in buying food. And then in the people we interact with in the store, you know, the cashier, a friendly smile. You know, I'm not talking about a deep, soulful gaze, just a simple, you know, how are you today? You know, just really simply, kindness, kindness in interactions, smiling at people. You know, the practice of smiling at strangers is one of my favorite things. I, um, at one point, I was doing my exercise in my neighborhood and walking in the streets, and I'd do it roughly the same time of day, and you know, I would start to get familiar with the various people and we would exchange smiles. And when I was really present, really present, it was such a beautiful feeling to smile at someone and have a smile back. You know, at one point I, I was like, how long does that good feeling last, you know? It was, it was amazing. It's like, I, I timed it. <laughs> Just like... 
there was one person in particular, a kind of an older man who, you know, he kind of looked down, and then when he looked up and saw me, just this amazing smile came over his face, and like waves of joy washed through me, and it's like 40 seconds. It lasted 40 seconds. (laughs) A smile gave me 40 seconds of waves of happiness. I mean, be there for it. (laughs) Connect to those deeper intentions and be. We can orient so much of our lives with these wholesome motivations just through conscious reflection, consciously inclining our minds in that direction. So I want to leave some time for comments and questions. I seem to always have more to say than I have time for, but I thought I'd stop there and see if there's any thoughts, comments, or questions. So um, the question was around, she was, she was in Half Moon Bay at a restaurant and was trying to make a connection with uh, the waitress and wasn't able to do that. She tried a number of times and was met with what she called the vacuousness. And so she tried again, and, and she experienced disappointment in not being able to make that connection and um, how to work with that. So um, that kind of uh, experience, I think, calls for uh, equanimity practice. (laughs) The practice of recognizing that we can't, basically we we can't make other people, first of all, do what we want them to do. Um, but also that we may not be able to to I mean that, that we don't you don't know what was going on for her, you know. And you know, compassion is another doorway sometimes for that, you know. When you see somebody who's doing something that feels distant, disconnected, you know there there could be something going on. You know we don't know. You don't want to make something up, but but um, you know just just. Recognize that we don't know the causes and conditions that are unfolding for somebody else. And often behavior that is disconnected has suffering underneath it, has a pain underneath it, may or may not even be conscious pain. The reflection on equanimity is basically the reflection that we each have to make our own choices and that we cannot make choices for other people. That no matter what we wish there, if we wish for a connection, wish for some kind of spark of friendliness or kindness, we can't make the choices for the other person. That we can wish them well, but we cannot make them well. The other so that's one part of you know reflection on the suffering that might be occurring, reflection on equanimity, and then also look at uh, whether there's a sense of expectation. When we have expectations, a lot of our I mean that's probably where the disappointment comes from, is that there was some kind of expectation and even unarticulated or unaware expectation that. If I behave in this way, maybe you've, you've done this with other people in the past and there's gotten to be that, that spark of joy. You know, it's kind of like if, you know, you get that kind of hit that I got with that guy smiling, if another day he doesn't look up, you know, it's like I can't make that connection. I'm looking at him, trying to get him to smile and he doesn't. It's like, 
oh, I'm not going to get that hit. I'm not going <laughs> to, it's not going to feel good. <laughs> so watch for expecting some kind of a particular result from your own actions. Our work in this world really is, in some ways, to put goodness into the world. And that goodness is amazing. I mean, it's, it really does impact the world. And yet, we have to put that goodness into the world without expectation of any particular result. It's a hard, that's hard, it's hard. And so sometimes we have to just watch the, the contraction, the disappointment, the, okay, there's, there was some expectation there to, so kind of we see it after the fact because we feel that contraction happening. Yeah. And it's nine o'clock, so I have to stop. Um, but I'm happy to stay here and respond to questions. So, um, you can come up here and I think the, there's the snacks, so. I'll just hang out here for a while. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.